this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. Our objective in this series is to think like Jesus. And if you're gonna think like Jesus, you gotta know where to start. There is a starting point. The Old Testament tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the New Testament says perfect love, like Jesus has, drives out all fear. So you have to know where to start, but how do you know where it's going? Let's think like Jesus thinks. So this series is about learning to think like Jesus. It's about more than simply knowing what Jesus says and does. It's about making that jump, you know, because we're all born to speak in our own native tongue. It's our sin tongue, and you can't really have that good dialogue until you make the jump from translating in your head to being able to think in that different language. And my hope in this series is that we can make this jump to thinking like Jesus, not just kind of hearing about it, reading about it, kind of knowing about it, but actually thinking the way Jesus thinks. We've been looking already this uh, in this series about how this peasant carpenter should have been a nobody, right? He should have been a nobody, but he was fully human and he was fully God, right? He was one with the living God. We really spent a lot of time last week looking at what it meant for him to be one with the living God, the son of the living God, and that he was laser focused on his mission. He was all about the thing that God sent him here to do that he now delegates to me and you, and that we are on mission with him. And so if we're going to be on mission with him, if we're going to do what he's called us to do, be who he's called us to be, we got to be able to make that jump in the way that we think. we got to think like Jesus. And I know from conversations that I've had with people, I, I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and they really had a legit, honest question. They were like, I'm not sure how to think about God and like God, how to think like Jesus, because it feels, frankly, like God is a little bit, you know, schizophrenic. You look in the Old Testament, and he was saying that you look in the Old Testament, and, and God seems to be holy and angry about it. Right? I mean, he's all like, stay away from me. Get away from me because I'm holy and you're not. If you get close to me, you'll die. I will punish you right where you stand. Right? But then New Testament, Jesus, who is one with God, is seemingly the opposite. He's warm and welcoming. Come unto me. Let the little children come to me. He's all about the warm, loving embrace. So what is it with God? How do I think like God in these ways? And I, I think it's a legit question. It's a really, really good question because if you don't know, if you don't think like him, it can seem like God might just be bipolar. You know, he might just be schizophrenic, happy one day, angry the next. So how do we think like Jesus? There's something really important you have to know about God right up front. It's the key principle of God that he establishes for us in the Old Testament. 
The thing about God, the thing about God, the big thing about God. He's got a lot of attributes, you know, a lot of characteristics, a lot of traits, but the big thing about God is that God is holy. God is holy. Does anybody know what that, that word holy means? Yeah, yeah, it means to be set apart. God is set apart. It means he is not like us. God is very different than we are. He is set apart from everyone else, right? Exodus 15 asks the question, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? Who is like God? The answer is nobody. Nobody is like God. In 1 Samuel, we see this declaration. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. There is no strong foundation. There is no level of earthly stability that we can even begin to comprehend that's anything close to God. That's why the creatures that fly around the throne of God in the throne room are always saying the same thing over and over and over again. What are they saying? Oh, you know your scripture. They're, they always say, holy, holy, holy. When they're making that declaration, they're not just, it's not like they've run out of things to say and they just don't know what else to say. They're making this declaration. He, God is holy, holy. He's Holy. They're not saying that he's just holy, but that he is infinite in his holiness. He is exponentially holier than anything else, anyone else you could ever even begin to imagine. God's holiness is not an aspect of who God is. God's holiness is the essence of who God is, right? Everything that God is, is holy. Everything that he thinks, everything that he says, everything that he does, everything about God is holy in every way. This is truth. This is what the absolute truth of God is. He is so set apart, so high above us, so holy that God is truth. I don't mean he tells the truth, he does, but I mean whatever God is, Whatever he thinks, whatever he does, whatever he says, that is, by definition, truth. Does that make sense? God is holy. He is true. He is the truth. Our problem, our problem is that we fall for the lie, right? We fall, we fall for the lie. We fell for the lie. God alone is holy. God alone deserves to be God. But in the garden, we became convinced that we deserve to be God, right? God alone is above all. He is the truth. But we thought, you know, what's true for God might not be true for me. And so we fell for the lie. We decided that he didn't deserve to be God, that we should be God, that he did, we didn't need to serve in his kingdom. We needed to build our own little kingdoms. And so we were designed by God to be that reflection of him, 
right? He designed us to be, yeah, it's kind of blinding, isn't it? Yeah, they'll get you, won't it? We were designed by God to reflect his glory. We were meant to show the holiness of God in the world around us because we alone are uniquely made in God's image. But in the garden, we broke it. We decided to break that mirror, God's mirror. We trampled all on it. And our reflection of God became broken. Incomplete. Seven years, bad luck. Thanks for lying. That's who we are. We're broken, tarnished, incomplete, inadequate image of the holy God. Do you remember when you were a little kid and you broke something of your mom or your dad's? Maybe you have kids and they break something important to you. How should the kid respond in that moment? Should that kid be like, yeah, give me another one. I'll break that too. Should that kid be defiant, prideful, or should that kid be contrite? Should that kid be a little fearful of what the consequences might be? Come on, which should it be? Yeah. We should be contrite. We should be fearful. That's who we should be. Humble before God, broken before God, realizing who we are, but that's not who we are. We're, we're defiant. We stick our fists up at God. We say, yeah, you don't like it? Come on back for more later because I got more for you. That's who we are. So we should fear God. We should fear God. We have broken something that he uniquely created and we've shattered it. Something that reflects him to the world. We've shattered it. So we should fear God. Psalm 7 says that God is an honest judge and he's angry with the wicked every day. What does his anger look like? Look at this from the prophet Nahum. He says, the Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and he continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, look at that, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade and the green forests of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before God's fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. 
God is a consuming fire. Of course we should fear him. That's why Proverbs says, fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. Fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning. It's the starting point. You're never going to be able to think like Jesus until you know the starting point. You've blown it. You've broken it. This precious, precious reflection of the Holy God, you have broken it, ruined it. So, of course, you should fear the Lord. My response and your response should be when we think about God, when we come into his presence, should be like Moses' response in front of the presence of God at the burning bush. He removed his shoes for he was on holy ground. Should be like Isaiah's response when he finds himself suddenly in the throne room of God, can't even see the holiness of God. All he can see is the train of his robes. And he hears the call, holy, holy, holy. And what does Isaiah do? He falls to his face before God. He says, woe is me. I'm an unclean man. I have unclean lips. And the people I come from are unclean also. This is the appropriate response to seeing God. We should be like Peter in the boat the day that miracle occurred, that first day that Jesus was in the boat. And they had been fishing all night, catching nothing. And Jesus says, nope, try again. <laughs> Peter obeys and realizes who he's obeying because the nets come in absolutely full. And what does he say to Jesus? He says, get away from me because you're holy and I'm not. The appropriate response to a holy God is to realize that he is holy. He is set apart and you are not. The first blank on your page is thinking like Jesus begins with fearing God. Thinking like Jesus begins with fearing God. Jesus doesn't fear God. No reason for Jesus to fear God. He's broken nothing. He's united with God. He's never done anything against the king. But we miss this. We miss this. We forget this. And if we miss this, we miss the whole picture. We miss the whole thing. We miss who God is. And it's like looking at the Grand Canyon and thinking, ah, it's just a little drainage ditch. I could hop right over that. It's like looking at the separation between us and God. He is on the other side of the Grand Canyon. Do you know how wide the Grand Canyon is? It goes up to 18 miles wide at certain points. And it's a mile deep. And Jesus is on one side, and you're on the other. And if you miss the holiness of God, he's separated by that much. You miss that holy attribute of God. You think, well, I can just hop right over there to him. That's exactly the mistake Adam and Eve made in the garden. I can make it. I can get there. I can be just as good. And what happens if you take that leap off the edge of the Grand Canyon? So God is holy. He's holy. 
And in his relationship with his people, the only way God could have a relationship was there had to be holy space created. So God instructs his people. He says this in Exodus 25. He says to Moses, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Don't have a lot of time to go into tabernacle today, but you understand that the tabernacle is the place where people who are unholy and God who is holy can somehow overlap. Because God has dictated the terms of the tabernacle, he's been very meticulous at what is there and what the elements of it are. And because of the sacrifices that are made inside the outer tent of the tabernacle, because of the sacrifices and because of the holy space, then God is able to overlap. He's able to occupy the same space as us right there in that little spot. Not anywhere else just right there in that spot because God is not like us. He is holy and he does not, will not put up with our sinfulness. It's the tabernacle that creates that holy space. Later, the temple when they were permanent there uh, in Jerusalem. It's that tabernacle, that temple that was there. So if you want to think like Jesus, you got to understand what gospel writer John says about Jesus and the tabernacle. The very opening passage of the gospel of John may be one of the most important definitions of who Jesus is that will help us think like Jesus thinks. So I want to spend some time looking at a couple of little pieces of John's introduction to really help us see how this all works out in our lives. So let's look at John 1, 1 through 3. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, Okay, get this language. And without him was not anything made that was made. You probably wouldn't say it that way. But let's look at what John is trying to tell us. Who is this passage about? Huh? Come on, who's it about? Jesus. It's about Jesus. So he says, in the beginning was the word. When he's talking about Jesus, he, he's talking about Jesus, He's describing him as the word. Now, you've heard me talk about this before. He describes him as the word because the word, words are the way that you and I express ourselves. The word is the expression of God. God expresses himself in the person of Jesus. He is the word in the beginning was the word in the beginning was Jesus the expression of God and the word Jesus was look at this with God it's a really important thing he says here he's with God he's with God 
So what we're seeing here from John is really clear that Jesus is not the same person as God. He's talking about the Father, right? So Jesus was with God. You can't be the same person and be with yourself. It's two different people. But look at this. He says the word was with God, but also the word was God. So he was with God, two different people, but he was God, two different people, but one and the same God. You got that figured out? <laughs> because Susan, theologians have been talking about that ever since this was written, and we still don't fully have it figured out. All we know is that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are three separate People, three separate entities, but they make up one entity, one God. They are three and they are one. Jesus, what Paul is telling us here, sorry, what John is telling us here is really important. He's saying that Jesus was with God and was God. He's saying that Jesus is God. John wants us to see this about Jesus. He wants to be really, really explicit about it. And so he's spelling it right out for us. He goes on and he says, he, who's he? Jesus, the word, he was in the beginning. Look at, here it is again, with God. He repeats the same thing both times. He was with God. He also says, all things were made through him and without him, was not anything made that was made. He doesn't repeat was God here, but here's what he says. He says all things were made through him, through him. So as God, God is creating, as he is doing his six days of creation, he's doing it through Jesus and that nothing was made except through Jesus. So he's really repeating the same thing again, that Jesus was with God and that he was God or that he is God. He's different, yet he's the same. Jesus is God. Jesus is holy, set apart, not like us. But John says something else just a couple of verses later. Actually, uh, just a few verses later in verse 14. It says the word, Jesus, look at this, became flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So a couple of things that John is showing us here, he's saying that Jesus became flesh. He became flesh. What that means is that Jesus is not a creature like you and I are. He's not created. He is the uncreated one. He wasn't made in the flesh. He made himself flesh. He stepped into a human body. God wrapped himself up in flesh, and he dwelt among us. I want to spend a minute on this dwelt here, because, and you probably know this. If you knew the answer to the question about the creatures flying around the throne, you might know this. That this word dwelt is the same word as the word tabernacle. So Jesus makes himself flesh, and the scripture literally says he 
tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth the spot where the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man can overlap in one spot is Jesus Christ God and man overlapping intersecting connecting right there in the person of Jesus this is huge that Jesus is not like us but he is like us. He's our great high priest and God himself occupies this body and becomes the point at which we can have a relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? John wants us to see this clearly that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's the next blank on your page. Jesus is God in the flesh. Sorry, Larry, I kind of got that a little bit out of order, but I think it'll be okay. Let's go back and look at it again one more time. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh. He tabernacled among us. And then here's the last thing I want us to see John saying. He says, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And in this statement right here, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. This may be one of the most foundational ideas that will help us start to think like Jesus, that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Now, Sherry and I were talking about this yesterday, and I really kind of think that there's grace people and there's truth people, right? Some of us are grace people, and we're all about happy, happy, get along, do whatever you got to do, say whatever you got to say to keep everybody happy, you know, just kind of keep everybody happy. Let's just, let's just be nice to everybody and just be nice. My wife is a great example of a grace person. She is all about going along to get along. It's all about grace. Some of us, on the other hand, are truth people, right and we'd instead of being happy we'd really just rather be right <laughs> and we want to make sure you're right and so sometimes we will jump into a situation as truth people we'll jump into a situation where we see there's conflict where we see there's problem and we'll try to our best to inject truth into the situation and we'll tick everybody off everybody gets mad people's feelings get hurt and they storm off angry, maybe never to return. Am I right, Susan Farnham? That's us truth people. That's who we are. Grace people look at a situation where there's conflict, and they want to go in and hug everybody. Let's just all get along. Let's just all love each other and be nice. Come on. I mean, we're all best friends here. Grace people and truth people. I say, I just got to say, as a truth person, sometimes it's hard to show grace. Sometimes it's hard for me to, to show grace. Sometimes I've seen you blow it enough times. You've stepped in it enough times. You should know better by now. I told you not to do that thing again, but you did it again anyway. And I just want to slap you around, man. Wake up. God bless you. What do the southern ladies say? Bless your heart. That's Southern for, you're an idiot. <laughs> right? But grace people, they see you do it again and again and again, 
it's okay, sweetie, it's okay, I'll be your friend no matter what, you know, you can just keep screwing up your life. It's okay, we'll all just get along. Some of us are grace people, some of us are truth people, but John tells us that Jesus, the word of God, the expression of God, God in the flesh, is full of both grace and truth. He is not like us. He's not 50-50 grace and truth. He's grace and truth to the full extent. He's 100% grace and 100% truth. He is all grace and all truth. This is a huge thing. In fact, that's the next blank on your page. Jesus is all grace and all truth. That means he steps into the situation and he fully injects all truth and all grace. So he's able to look to me and you. And he's able to see your sin in your life. And if he's like a truth person, he's just going to be like, yeah, you're going to get what you deserve, fatty. You know, I mean, he's just not going to put up with it. But if he's all grace, he's going to be like, it's okay, don't worry about it. And he will grace you right into hell because your sin must be paid for. What does it mean to be full of grace and truth? I think you see it all the time in your own life. Here's how I think we all are. No matter if you're more grace or more truth, here's what I, I think, at least as a truth person, here's what I think. I think that we're really quick to give truth the farther a person is away from us. And we're really quick to give grace to those closest around us. So, you, you know, especially us. I think we're really quick to give truth to other people that we don't know who are living that way, doing those things. They deserve the truth. But I deserve all the grace. So I'm sitting at the, at the, at the stop sign before there was a three-way stop at Old Five and 382. I know I always talk about this. It's all I got in my life. <laughs> Sitting at the stop sign, and I'm waiting. I'm on the motorcycle, actually. I'm waiting. I'm just waiting to go, waiting to go, waiting to go. And, and before there was a stop sign everywhere, you know, people are just flying by at 100 miles an hour. And you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting to go. You just got to go, got to go. And then all of a sudden, you know, got this one redneck woman who decides to turn I, I mean okay this one guy decides to as he's coming <laughs> towards me I'm just waiting to go waiting to go waiting to go and they just turn right I had plenty of time to go I could have gone but they never bothered to turn signal me if they had just signaled me I would have known jerk too stupid to know how to flick the lever on your steering column idiot I can't believe how dumb you are Right? Come on, anybody? Anybody? Just me? That's some of my Orlando leftover still. But then not, yeah, she, Sherry's just right now cussing me in the chair right here. So, yeah, so I get that. But then five minutes later, I pull out onto 515 in front of people, and folks have to slam their brakes. I'm like, huh, sucks to be you. Because I deserve the grace. Sure, I blow it every now and then. Sorry. I deserve the grace, but you deserve the truth. Am I right? That's kind of what we do. 
Man, it's really, 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 really easy to pass truth judgment on the people in the LGBTQ community if you don't know somebody in that. Boy, they deserve the truth. It's them. They are bad. Probably all going to hell. But if it's your son or your daughter, you have a very different mentality about it, don't you? Now you'll do whatever you can to keep that relationship going. You don't agree with their lifestyle, their behavior, but man, you, you don't want to lose them. So you won't talk about it at the dinner table, right? You'll do whatever grace you got to do to keep them as close as you can keep them. I think we're really good at truth and grace, but we do it proportionally based on how close people are in our lives. Grace for me, truth for you. That's not like Jesus. You know the story of the woman caught in adultery. Not going to go into that whole thing right now. I was going to read it all. Larry, I'm going to skip that passage. Uh, but you know the story. The Pharisees drag the woman into Jesus' presence, accuse her of committing adultery. And they pick up the rocks and they're like, well, all right, we're going to give her the truth. The truth is that God hates adultery. And Moses said, we got to crush her skull with these rocks. You know what Jesus said. First of all, he said the truth. See, you don't see Jesus exercising a lot of grace with the religious elites. You know why? Because they'd already been given a ton of grace. Right, God had given them the privilege of knowing his word better than everybody else, knowing and being able to be in the temple, knowing and being able to speak for God. They had been given a ton of grace and they'd abused it, taken advantage of it. The way they were living their lives was defiant. Come on back, God, I'll give you more of that. And so Jesus didn't show a lot of grace to those people. He showed them truth because that was where they were. And he said, he who has no sin, cast the first stone. And so they all left. And then Jesus looks to the woman and he says, who condemns you? And she looks around and it's just her and Jesus. And she says, no one, I guess. And he says, grace, right? He says, neither do I. But he also says, truth, go and sin no more. Jesus is full of grace and truth. When Jesus is confronted with the situation, he is all grace and all truth, and he knows how to appropriately and in a godly way apportion it out to whoever he's dealing with. Do we, do we think like Jesus in this way, or do we jump straight to truth for them, or jump straight to grace for us? Do we Respond to our own stupid actions in contrite humility? Or are we defiant and do we take advantage of God's grace? Grace without truth is playing happy based on a platform of lies. Grace without truth is deceiving to people. It deceives people into thinking everything's okay. Grace without truth is meaningless. I'm going to say it one more time. Grace without truth is meaningless. Say it with me. Grace without truth is meaningless. 
But truth without grace is condemning to people. It crushes people. And truth, sorry, yeah, truth without grace isn't meaningless. It's just mean. Right? Speaking as a truth person, truth without grace is just mean. But next blank on your page, real love is full grace and full truth. This is what Jesus does for me. I am a mirror-breaking sinner, and I have a lot to fear from God. But God has a plan for me, and his plan for me is to tabernacle in Jesus, to create a holy space. He creates the overlap. He comes to me. I don't have to jump across the Grand Canyon to get to him. He comes all the way to me. And at the cross, at the cross, all of God's grace and all of God's truth are fully apparent. Because truth, God punishes my sin, but grace, he punishes it in Jesus. He's all grace and he's all truth. The truth is my sin, your sin must be punished. But grace is Jesus saying, I'll take it for you. I'll step in for you. I will be punished in your place. Ephesians 2 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if you're going to think like Jesus, you have to predetermine that no matter who it is and what the circumstance, that you're going to go fully grace and fully truth. That you're going to love selflessly and give yourself away, but you're going to do it in the gospel terms that my sin and your sin has been paid for in Christ and that we all have something to fear from God but that he loves us and he punished Jesus in our place. This is what brings peace. Our inner mind will have conflict because we don't know how to think grace or truth. Is God loving and warm and welcoming or, or is he holy and angry about it? We have conflict but when we think like Jesus, it brings peace. We know who we are. We know how to think. We know how to address the illegal immigrants at Tower Road. We know how to deal with the homosexuals around us. We know how to deal with the liars and the gossipers. We know how to deal with the people who have betrayed us and broken our hearts because we go full-on grace and full-on truth. It's hard to think like Jesus, and only the Holy Spirit can give us the ability to do that. But our response should always be, last blank on your page, to love like Jesus, to love like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Mm -hmm.